leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, and thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Before we jump into this, I want us just to close our eyes. And if you would, for a few moments, just ask God to open our heart and to speak to us for the next few minutes. Lord, we come before you tonight. We thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the cross, the extension of grace and mercy that's been freely given to us. Pray, God, that you would begin to speak to us and minister to our heart. Allow us to open up to receive your spirit, your word through us to build the faith so that we can anticipate miracles and see great signs and wonders. We give you all the glory, and everyone said, in Jesus' name, amen. I was telling Brother Kevin a couple of weeks ago, my electric razor uh, died on me. I knew something was going on. It, uh, I'm just going to be very transparent. You all will think differently after I tell the story, but um, something was going on because one night after I shaved, uh, before church, I tried to shut my razor off, and it wouldn't shut off. It just kept running. And uh, so I, I tinkered around with it. I, 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 do, I take the screws off the back and tried to look at something that I had no idea how to fix, even if something was broken. And uh, obviously nothing was there, so I put the screws back in there, and it just kept running. So I thought, well, it'll quit running eventually. And sure enough, next morning I got up, it was dead. I uh, plugged it in and charged it up. It worked perfect. Well, uh, a few days later, I, I went to shave again, and sure enough, it wouldn't turn off. And so I did what any uh, mechanically inclined person would do. I whacked it on the sink a couple times, and <laughs> quickly it shut off. And uh, so I put it in the, the attache case in the shelf and, and forgot about it. Well, I was walking that later that evening. That was in the morning. I was walking through the house, and I thought every time I passed the bathroom, I could hear something just whirling away. And I thought, what in the world? And sure enough, I walked in there, and the razor's just going. And uh, so I went, and it wouldn't shut off. And so I thought, forget it. So I, I said, that thing ran all night long. I got up that night just because I was worried about it, didn't want to be alone in the bathroom. So I walked in there, and it was still running in the middle of the night. The next morning, I get up, and it's dead. It won't recharge nothing. So um, I can't even remember. It was, uh, that was Saturday night that all that took place, and it was dead all day Saturday and I went shooting uh, trap with Brother Matt Gordon, and uh, I didn't shave, and so I thought, well, he probably won't, you know, crucify me. We're going shooting. That's a man's deal. You don't have to shave if you go shooting, right? And, and uh, so we went and shot trap and came back home, and I forgot all about it until late that night, and I realized tomorrow morning, Sunday, and I have no razor. So I ran down to CVS Pharmacy right in Beach Grove there, and, and I thought they were 24 hours. It looked like it was closed. So I went across the street to Walgreens. I don't know why they do that. They put CVS, Walgreens, right across. If you figure that out, let me know. That is so confusing. You think they stretch them out. You know, let's uh, put some options here. But So I went in there, and I was going to buy the seven-blade uh, Gillette, the real good one. And uh, there was one lady working the cash register, and there was uh, 4,000 people that were waiting in line. And uh, this was like the day before Halloween, so everybody was buying candy. And I walked in the back, and... Uh, went to get a razor, and I noticed I got this bar stretched across that they had all the razors locked up in. I thought, you got to be kidding me. Like, who's going to steal a $7 razor? But they had them locked up. So I had to buy some cheap generic, and I bought it in a three-pack and, and uh, got some shaving cream. And, and uh, I know I'm taking a long time in this story, but I just got to <laughs> tell this. And uh, got home and shaved. Well, uh, today, I, I was... Uh, Look in the mirror, I thought, do I, should I reshave before I go? Yeah, I better. I'm speaking the first time. I want to make a good impression, be freshly shaved, and uh, even though I shaved this morning. And so I thought I'd touch myself up with a razor. And so I got to looking, and I noticed something underneath my nose. And, and I thought, what in the world? And would you believe that there was like a half an inch long hair just hanging? I can't believe some of the students. Just, that I had for, I, I, I was rushing every morning, you get up, have a sleep, you're shaving, and, and that one little spot that I missed, that thing was growing. <laughs> Took care of that, cut that. This is I had to get a pair of scissors and snip that thing before I could even get the razor after it. 
I told you you'd think of me differently. And uh, so it, it was, a, you know, I don't feel so bad. Brother Black, pastors in Memphis, Tennessee, is telling me a story a while back. And I don't know if any of you all know Brother Chambers, Elder Brother Chambers. He was on general conference, and he was sitting on the platform. Brother Black was sitting right behind him. Brother Chambers, he's getting up in age, and uh, he's, he's old. He's passed on. He's probably in his 80s, and, uh, and he's sitting there, and, and uh, Brother Black noticed while he was sitting there that there was a white hair on his shoulder, and uh, he thought, well, you know, obviously Sister Chambers gave him a hug or something, and she left the hair on his jacket, and so he was sitting there, and he's waiting, and a song was going, he thought, you know, I'll just reach up after the song is done when everyone just kind of lifts their hands, and I'll just reach up and brush that off. And the song ended, and Brother Chambers lifted his hands, and Brother Black just reached up to grab that hair and pull it off, and Brother Chambers goes, ah! Was, uh, and, uh, he, said he, he said it was a, it was a hair like eight inches long that we just forgot to shave hanging off. That's a true, that's a true, I, right here's the, that's a true story. So if you're sitting next to a guy, if you wouldn't mind just kind of looking around his neck and make sure he's shaved real good and got all those hairs hanging out. You know, you think when you get married, some of you married don't want to talk about it, you think that my wife would have noticed that. She didn't notice. But, yeah, she might have noticed. Are we having fun yet? I, I, re- I got a lot of good things to say. That was just part of it. There's a spiritual application in there somewhere. We'll just pray about it and get home tonight. You you won't look at a razor the same. Some of you guys are going home. I know what you're going to be doing. You're going to get that little handheld mirror make sure the <laughs> hair's growing off your nose. When you get older, they say the hair in your ears and your nose, they just keep growing. And uh, I, I'm, I'm 34 years old. And uh, thank you for all those kind words. And uh, 34 years old. And I haven't had to trim my ears yet. But uh, I'm just waiting for that day. I don't mind getting old. It's, uh, it's just another year now, another birthday. My wife and I just celebrated on Monday 14 years of marriage. And, uh, thank you. Um, if you're 20 years of age and thinking about getting married and you go to IBC, you just need to wait until you're at least, Brother Brown, just wait until you're 22 or something like that. And uh, just wait a little bit, wait a little bit. And uh, Taylor, you just need to wait. Don't get in such a big hurry. And, uh, oh, you're 24 already? My word. Well, what are you waiting on? <laughs> just, uh, my goodness. I was thinking about children when I was 24. But uh, just wait. It's too young. I couldn't even rent a car on our honeymoon. My wife had to. She's older than me. And uh, I wouldn't even let me rent a car. She had to rent the car. That's embarrassing. <laughs> can't be much of a man when you're not even old enough to rent a car or check your ID on that, apparently. How many ever heard of the story in 1 Samuel? It talks about, uh, it's a beautiful process of a lady by the name of Hannah. Uh, Hannah was a godly lady. She was married to a man that was committed to God, Elkanah. And Hannah, Hannah's family was an example to every Christian. Every Christian. The Bible speaks of Elkanah. It says that he was a man that was committed. He was committed to the temple. As a matter of fact, we find reference that year after year that he would bring his family to the temple of God. Now, this was the story that was unfolded here. The temple was a place at this moment in history, Hebrew history, that there were issues going on. You see, Eli had couple of sons that had taken the temple and they had turned it into a place not of worship and not of purity, not a place that represented sanctification or justification, but they had turned the temple into a place uh, of evil. They had committed acts of idolatry on the temple stairs. They had robbed from people. The children of Israel would bring sacrifice and some of their sacrifice would never make it on the Day of Atonement, to wash back the sins that they had committed. But they would take it and they would steal it. And so in the people's mind, they they watched the debauchery that was taking place at the temple. 
And so they refused to come. Most of Israel would not even come into the temple. But Elkanah was not going to the temple because of the man of God or the people that were there. He was going because there was a sense of obligation that he was to worship and to magnify God. You see, he didn't care what others were saying and what others were doing. He instructed his family, we go to magnify Yahweh. We worship Jehovah. That's who we worship. Doesn't matter if I don't like the actions or what they're doing. We go to magnify God. And so Hannah became accustomed to going to the temple once a year and lifting up the name. Giving sacrifice. A whole week would be spent doing their duty at the temple. It was in this time that Hannah became concerned about her need. And, and in this particular passage of Scripture, Hannah, whose name means grace, was in a marriage that there was an adversary. You see, Elkanah had another wife in this marriage, and, and this wife was blessed of God. She had many children, and Hannah, on the other hand, was barren. She had no children. Begin to vex Hannah's soul. She would go to the temple once a year with her family, but she would separate herself and she would commit to praying, calling upon God. She'd pray prayers like, don't forget me, remember me. God, you see my affliction. You see the adversary comes and begins to point out my faults and failures. And, and I can't take it anymore. Every day I wake up, She's right there to tell me that, oh, you may be better loved by her husband and, and he may give you a, a greater portion of the inheritance, but, but look, I provided, I've given him children, therefore I'm blessed and you are not. Begin to vex her soul. The Bible says that this particular time she goes into the temple and she falls upon her face and she begins to cry out unto God. The priest is there, Eli, and he marks her mouth, Scripture says, and he at first thinks that she's drunken. He goes up and he begins to rebuke her. He says, lady, why would you come to the temple in this state? She says, I'm not drunk. There's an affliction of my soul. It had been a while since Eli, the priest, had seen somebody come to church and have a burden been a while since he had seen someone fall on their face and, and cry out to God with such passion and such fervor that she didn't care who looked at her or who mocked her, but she needed an answer from God. And he didn't recognize that this was a woman that was operating under a burden and passion and anointing, but he thought it was something different. It's been a while since he had seen somebody with pure intentions, a heart that was righteous, let me just pause right here and say there needs to come a point in our life where we come to church with purpose. You see, specificity is a part of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There's no generality. There's no open-ended religion. There's not find your own pathway. You see, God is very specific on salvation. He's specific on the way we are to live and, and how we approach Him and how we come into His presence. As a matter of fact, the example that we have from the Old Testament is we never step into the presence of God or even the sanctuary of Jehovah without bringing with us a sacrifice to give unto Him. My question tonight is what's our sacrifice? What did we bring in return of God's blessing? What did we bring to give to Him tonight? I'm not talking about an offering. I'm talking about our worship. When I walked into church, was my mind distracted about the job I did today? My co-worker? Who was going to be here? Who wasn't going to be here? Or did I come to church tonight expecting God to do a move in my life? Did I walk in here out of obligation because this is what I do on Wednesdays? Or did I come into this place saying, God, I need a move because yesterday's move of the Holy Ghost is not going to suffice and Sunday's move of the Holy Ghost is kind of passed me by, but God, I need you right now. Oh, Hannah, when's the time that you come into the tabernacle and you stop worrying about what someone else thinks? How many years has it been that you've been barren and crying out to God? Oh, I don't know about you, but, but I want something to well up inside of me. 
I want something to be with me every time I walk in the church. Doesn't matter how I feel. Doesn't matter my physical state or my mental state. I want to come to God and say, Lord, I'm here to get a hold of you. Bless me tonight. Well, what would happen if we pushed aside every other thought and we said, I'm here because I need you. Hannah came with that purpose. The priest didn't understand. He looked at her and I don't know if he was really saying what he meant or if he was just trying to dismiss her to get her out of there. You know how it is. Somebody asks you how you're doing, you say good. But you're not doing good, you just want them to leave. You think, oh Lord, if I talk to them, I'm going to be here for 35 minutes and I'm trying to get to the restaurant tonight to get home, to get something to eat, to get to bed. I'll just say, good, we'll leave it at that. Hopefully they don't stop. Hopefully we can just kind of move on by as I'm talking. You know, I don't know if he meant that. I don't know if he was saying, oh, okay, great, uh, you're praying, good. Now, would you please get out of here because you're making everybody else nervous because nobody prays like that anymore. You know, God help us if we get to the place where we're embarrassed about the way somebody prays, somebody worships, somebody calls out to God. You know, I remember as a kid, a teenager growing up, and, and uh, pardon me for using myself as a reference, but, but I know myself better than I know you, and so I'll just talk about me. And because uh, I got a lot of good examples, like hairs hanging out of my nose and, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, I remember as a teenager, I'd invite my friends to church occasionally, uh, maybe once a year, twice a year, you know, just to do my duty, and uh, invite them to church. And, and they'd come to church. You know what my prayer was? My prayer wasn't, well, I hope my dad, he was a pastor, I hope dad preaches good tonight, or, boy, I hope we just have wonderful time. You know what my prayer was? God, please don't let Sister Plapper just go do her thing. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? Sister Plapper, she was a wonderful lady, and uh, her husband didn't live for God, and she brought her kids to church. And, and I, if it, Does anyone know Sister Plapper? Okay, we can talk, take this off that podcast. We don't want this to get out. And uh, Sister Plapper, she, she was... Uh, She's a, a strong lady, and uh, she had uh, a lot of hair. It was red hair, and Sister Plappard put a lot of bobby pins in that hair, and she didn't use any hairspray, apparently. She just wrapped that big old mound up and just wrapped it up. and around. You know, that you could have had a couple gerbils just living up in there. Nobody <laughs> even know about it because this big old hair she'd walk around. Uh, you know, back in the day, they used to take oatmeal boxes and stick it up underneath that hair and pile hair on top of it. You think I'm kidding? That's the truth. There's probably some oatmeal boxes upstairs right now just wandering around the sanctuary in somebody's hair. <laughs> Sister Plapper, she had all those things. And, you know, it, we had a good service. When we go as a kid, we'd pick up bobby pins and take them back over to Sister Plapper. And uh, I'd just think, oh, God, please don't let Sister Plapper do her thing tonight. And sure enough, every night I prayed that, Sister Plapper did her thing. I had a friend of mine. He's my best friend growing up, John Mark Tolley. That's a name. John Mark Tolley, best friend. And uh, John Mark and I, we got in all kinds of trouble. And I'll never forget the first time I brought him to church. He went to this church that was real stiff, starch. They didn't worship. I don't even know if they had music most of the time. Uh, they just sat there and clapped their hands and recited things, what they were told to recite. You got a program, and when someone would read, you'd read. And I went to church with him one time, and that was not church. I brought him to my church, and he's sitting there, and God, please don't let Sister Plapper do her thing. Don't let Sister Plapper do her thing. And would you, they, they sing one of those songs. You know how it is. That four on the floor song, dun, 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 dun. You know, and, and so things started moving, and I thought, oh, great. And she'd start out, she'd always start out with a big, woo, and then she'd do her thing, and she'd start shaking. And she'd go down the front, and she was shaking that hair, and that big old hair is flopping back and forth, and bobby pins, and children on the front row are dodging and covering their eyes, and mothers are grabbing babies, and Sister Plappard's doing her thing. And John Mark Tolley's sitting there. Never had enough nerve. I thought about leaning over and saying, yeah, this is when we bring out the snakes. <laughs> and uh, she'd do, she's, some of y'all don't even know what that means. But, uh, well, years ago, no, uh, we'll just go on from there. You see, it had been a while since, uh, since Hannah had, had, you know, someone had prayed like Hannah prayed. And, uh, and so, okay, he's a little worried about it. He's a little worried because he didn't want the other people in the church to get, I don't know, maybe convicted because they wasn't travailing and reaching out to God and calling upon his name. And so he just said, you know, why don't you just, uh, uh, God's going to answer your prayer. Whatever's in your heart, God will give to you, the desires. You're praying, God hears it. He's going to take care of it. 
I don't know if it was, I, I tend to think it was just kind of brush her, get her out of here because of the way he was feeling about that moment. But something in there released faith. The words that he spoke began to release faith. And Hannah began to see and feel and anticipate God began to work on her behalf. The Bible says that when she went home, about a year later is the appointed time, that something began to be birthed inside of Hannah. And she began to see the fruits of the promise that God had given her. You see, it wasn't but a couple months and she thought, hmm, I feel a little queasy this morning. And, uh, and, and a few more weeks go by and she, well, I, I thought I felt something move. And then she began to say, well, this dress doesn't quite fit the way it used to fit. Honey, does this make me look fat? My wife asked me that one time, and I looked at her, and I thought, do, do I look retarded? <laughs> and it's better just to keep your mouth shut. Just walk away. Walk away. Just keep your mouth shut. Just walk away. And she began to see. You don't talk about it. She began to see. The evidence, the evidence of the promise. And she began to make this commitment to God and she said, God, if you give me a child, I'm going to give this child back to you. Lord, if, if this is the promise that I have been praying for, then I return it back to you. Because every blessing, every miracle is not a result of what I can conjure up and what I could do, but it's because of you. And the evidence was so overwhelming that nobody said, Hannah, are you pregnant? They said, oh, Hannah, when are you due? Because the evidence was there. She didn't have to say, I'm going to have a baby one day, because she waddled around and she says, we're having a baby. And everybody said, yes, you are having a baby, aren't you? And sure enough, it began to happen. And the baby was born, and it was a boy. And she gave it back to the house of God. She returned it. She put it back in there. The blessing that God had given her. She made that commitment. She said, whatever you bless me with, I give back into you. The purposeful intent of releasing the faith, receiving the blessing, and then in turn giving the worship back to God. The process of completion. Allowing God to know that I see what you have placed upon my life. But it's not something for me to keep. It's something for me to return. You see, here's how the anointing works. When you open your vessel up after you've prepared it, and you've been cleansed by the anointing of God. And you say, Lord, fill me. God begins to fill you with the anointing. But that anointing cannot stay with you. It must be released. And so you must let that anointing flow through you into someone else. That's why we practice and we preach apostolic ministry. Because it's about releasing what God has given you. Walking up, laying hands on the sick that they may receive healing of body. Laying hands on those that they can receive forgiveness of sins and be filled with the presence of God. Why? It's because virtue has to flow out of you. Why? Because God wants to take that empty space where virtue once dwelled and refill you again. And it's a process of receiving and releasing and receiving and releasing. Why? Because it prepares you ultimately for the completion of God's kingdom in your life. The Bible tells us that this miracle that was given back to Him Back to God. This miracle was in place in the care. Most of us know the story. Samuel grew up. Eli was his teacher. Now this was not, very, this was not uncommon. This was the vow of a Nazarite. You see, uh, this vow was that he would not touch any unclean thing. He would not shave his head. Uh, it was a vow of commitment that he would go. He would learn. Most Israel... Uh, lights, they would send their children, Hebrew children would go to the temple. And before the age of eight, most of them could quote word for word uh, large portions of the Old Testament. 
they could quote word for word all of the books of Moses. Uh, they knew the commas. They knew, they knew the pauses, the periods. They, they knew uh, the continuation of verses. And so they could quote that by heart. Most Jewish children could do that. And so it wasn't uncommon for a mother. But you see, there was something different about the relationship of Samuel and another child. Because there was a commitment that mama made that said, I'm giving this blessing back. And Samuel began to see and he became a recipient of giving back unto God. And so he began to grow up in, in Eli's house. And, and even though Eli's sons were not doing uh, what God wanted and they were a bad influence something spared Samuel's life and, and the Bible says that God was looking for someone and he found that someone in Samuel because in the middle of the night where no open word and no open vision was given Eli hadn't heard the presence of God he hadn't heard the voice of God hadn't felt the presence of God in a long time scripture tells us but all of a sudden the voice speaks out of the darkness Samuel Eli immediately associates this with the voice of his spiritual mentor and leader. And so he runs into Eli. Samuel does and says, yes, you called. And Eli says, no, go back. Samuel lays down and again the voice speaks. Samuel. Samuel jumps up and Eli, you called, you spoke. No, no, no. Go lay down. Stop bugging me. Happens again. Same process. And then all of a sudden Eli begins to see the darkened spirituality temporarily lifts from himself. And he says, possibly this is God that's speaking to this young boy. He turns and he says, Samuel, next time you hear this voice, I want you to say, speak, Lord, for thy servant listeneth. Speak. I don't know if he believed it. His sons had gone so far. But Samuel begin to hear the voice of God. You see, in the midst of a land, of a place that was living in sin, the law of averages would say that Eli's sons would influence Samuel to do something wrong. Samuel began to defy the law of average. In our world, we have a law, it's called gravity. You've probably experienced it before. It's uh, actually the correct terminology is the gravitational pull, the law of gravitation. And it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, we try to do things to defy this all the time. Uh, we guys, we work out to defy that pull. You know, the more you work out, I'm con- that's why I don't work out, obviously. I don't know if you can tell that or not. Um, that's a joke. Uh, Guys, we, we work out, but you know what? Gravity takes over because all those muscles that are stacked on your shoulders, they just sink right down to your stomach. Right there. <laughs> gravity just pulls them right down. It just happens. I, I can't, you know, uh, they got all kinds of stuff to, uh, I mean, you put those creams on your face. And uh, I noticed the other day in the magazine, they had this thing that you put inside of your mouth and it's, you're supposed to bite down on it and it's supposed to lift your face. Have you seen that? It's like uh, a, a non-surgical uh, facelift or something like that. And it's, uh, it was on one of those airplane things. You know those magazines, Sky Mall magazines? Those are pretty, yeah, it's supposed to lift your whole face up. And it's supposed to sleep in pain with your face being stretched and all that muscles. And uh, you get up in the morning, gravity just pulls them right down. And uh, it doesn't work. And so, you know, you, you throw something up in the air and you just expect it to fall, right? Uh, gravity, we, we fight against gravity. No one argues about gravity. No one argues, if you, if you don't think gravity exists, just jump. Just go ahead, just jump on up to the moon. Uh, no, you know, what goes up, it comes right back down. And uh, now, Brother Aaron Davey found out that uh, gravity works. Um, I tried to jump over his head to dunk it, and gravity just pulled me right back down. I didn't even get off the ground. And uh, <laughs> he's convinced that gravity works. Now, the older you get, the more of the effects of gravity. Because younger people, for some reason, they can defy gravity. You can jump higher, run faster. Uh, so enjoy when you hit 34 years of age. Somebody help me out here. You can feel that gravity because you go to jump and the body says no. <laughs> and uh, you get out of bed in the morning. And uh, I'm telling you, I played one game of basketball the other night. And they, Michael Mass beat the snot out of me. And uh, I played and I got up out of the bed that next morning. And it was my left knee. 
Now, I didn't do anything to that left knee, apparently. But I, got, I haven't done anything to that left knee for a couple years because when I got out of bed, it kept making this funny little... Every time I'd stretch it out and I'd go, oh, that doesn't sound good. And then I'd do it again. Oh, that's probably, something's probably messed up in there. <laughs> a few minutes later, I go, oh, yeah, there's something wrong there. And, uh, hey, honey, listen to this. You hear that? What? And uh, you know what she told She had no sympathy. She said, you're getting old. And uh, she didn't even try to, like, honey, you played a great game last night. You know what she told me? Uh, this is what. My wife is a wonderful lady. I probably should not say this, but she, she told me, she said, uh, when I got done playing that basketball game, it was right before the tournament, staff took on uh, the students, and uh, we got beat, but only by two points. Um, we lied, cheated, and stole, but we're not proud of anything we did out there, but we only lost by two points. And, uh, and so I, get, I finished that game, and she said, honey, she said, uh, what happened to you out there? I said, what do you mean? I scored a point. And uh, she said, you're horrible. <laughs> and uh, uh, she, this is the honest truth. And uh, I said, well, I'm 34 years old. Uh, a couple of those kids were like four years old when I got married. Seven. <laughs> they, I could have been their dad on some of them. And... Uh, she said, well, you, you didn't used to play that bad when you were younger. And uh, so she built my confidence up, made me feel real good about myself. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, that law of gravity, it gets to us. And you all laugh about it. But uh, some of you older marrieds know what I'm talking about. And uh, we try to hide it. But some of you older, just in period, are thinking bad thoughts about me because I just said that it's affecting you. And... Uh, you know, it, it's, it gets to us, the law of gravity, what goes up comes down. But, you know, we live in this understanding of, of the gravitational pull, but there is a law that defies gravity. It's called the law of aerodynamics. Now, you take an airplane, say, we'll say a 747. Now, is that airplane lighter than air? So, like, in reality, that thing should never fly. But you add a couple things to it, like you put an engine on there, and you begin to propel that thing down a runway. Uh, you, you reach a speed to where you can alter the tilt of that wing, and something happens. The downward push of air now becomes the upward push of air. And you alter the angle of that wing, and what happens is the downward push is less than the upward push, and that 747, with all those people in it, begins to slowly lift off the ground the law of aerodynamics. And it defies the law of gravity. So we have two laws. Which one's right? When we come to church... There is a physical side, a fleshly side, that tells us one thing. We walk into church and we say, I'm still going to have the same struggles when I leave. Reality. We come to church and we say, I'm only going to be able to achieve so much because of reality. We look at our past and we say, this is my MO, this is the way I operate. This is my mode of operation, my MOA. This is how I do things. I live for God, I fail. I live for God, I fail. And so the law of reality says that I'm locked into this process. The law of reality tells us that when we go to the doctor and we get a bad report and he says, I'm sorry, you have cancer, we think, oh great, chemotherapy, horrible time, possibility of death. Why? Because the law of reality tells us that. We lift our hands in church and we begin to cry out to God and we say, but I know that there's still going to be bills to pay even though I've cried out for a financial blessing. The law of reality tells us that. But you see, there's more working than just a law of reality because just as there is a law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics defies it and the law of spirituality begins to defy reality. And when you come to God and begin to open yourself up and you say, God, I need a financial blessing, you may not be able to feel or see or even understand the dynamics that you're releasing, but God begins to look down on your situation and says, you just hold on because the blessing's coming. 
Oh, come on, somebody, the doctor tells you that there's a sickness in your body and there's no hope for you. The cancer is spreading. You just might as well give up radiation. But you know what? You come into God's presence and you begin to say, Lord, I need a miracle. And it doesn't matter what the law of reality tells you. It doesn't matter what the norm is doing. It doesn't matter what people believe. What matters is what God says. Oh, hear me, somebody. It doesn't matter if you struggle every day of your life. Today could be your day of victory. It doesn't matter what your job says, what your boss says, what your past says. It doesn't matter why. Because when you come into the presence of God and you can kneel at his cross, oh, there's a law of reality that's about to be shattered. Why? Because somebody's stepping into your spirituality. You see, Samuel could have been just like Eli's son. He could have struggled. He could have done things contrary to God's word. But something caused him to define the norm. Living for eight years in Alaska. I met many people. That were natives, homeland, flew out to several villages. It was an awesome privilege. I loved it. In the course of conversation, a few of them I was able to befriend. We become close friends. We talked on many times. As a matter of fact, my Bible cover was given to me by a native couple. It was presented to me as a gift. It's a seal skin. And they would begin to tell me their history, their past. And I don't know if you know anything about Alaska or, or Native Alaskans, but they struggle, they seem to struggle in certain areas. And, and I question, I ask them, well, why does it seem as if the suicide rates are the highest in the nation per capita? Why is that? Why is this the norm? There was one village that six... Teenagers in a small village of a couple hundred, six teenagers committed suicide at one time. Six of them. I talked to a young man. He wasn't young. He was in his 30s, but he began to tell me a story. He, he said that at the age of four, he got his first taste of alcohol. Four years of age. He told me, he said, at six, I was an alcoholic. There were open containers in my house. He said, at five, my parents had some uh, teenagers from the village who would come live with them. Their parents had left. Or they, didn't, they lived outside, and so my parents invited them in. He said, and by the age of eight, he said, I was raped and molested multiple times. He said, I needed that alcohol at six. I needed it. He said, it was so easy to escape the pain, erase those memories. I thought maybe his story was one that was unique, small, statistic, vast place. But I began to see that it wasn't just him. and It wasn't just a cultural thing. Because the more people I began to talk to, they fit the same category as him. Pain, hurt. So they searched and they found something. It wouldn't eliminate it, but it would dull it. Where they could sleep at night. Villages, they've done many different things. They've outlawed their dry villages. They, they, they check containers. There's one particular village that a small container of alcohol will go from $500 to $1,000. Because there are people that are crying out desperate. I begin to look, and it's not just an Alaska thing. It, it, it stretches because there are many different people that you come in contact to that are hurting. There are people you work with and neighbors. There's people around this church. Some of us would be shocked and appalled to walk into their home and, and just be an observer. Because we'd cry out and hurt just looking at their hurt. 
You know, we look at that and we say, how, how, can, how could they come out of that? How can they be delivered? How can I deal with the pain, cope? You see, there's a healing power. The Holy Ghost is able to reach down. It takes brokenness and pieces it back together. You see, I've watched. I've watched young people. I've watched young adults. I watched a little old lady in Carmax, Yukon. First Nation. A little old lady struggled with alcohol and drugs in her 70s. I watched her come to an altar right after a youth chorale sang and lift her hands and God wash away all of her sins and fill her with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the next year that I went back, she didn't look the way she looked the first year. But she walked in there and she looked apostolic and she looked whole. And you could have never have deciphered where she came from and the lifestyle that she came out of. I want to tell you a story about Colton, Colton Daniels. Colton was in and out of juvenile delinquent homes. All through his early years, he, his mom and dad didn't know how to handle him. They divorced. The wife was in shambles. Anytime his mom got to a place where she didn't really want to take care of the kids, she'd send him off. Colton was 14 years of age, and, and I got a phone call that he was in Anchorage, and so I went to visit him at the detention center. I walked in, and Colton was so excited to see me. I, they had craft night going on, and so we did this craft together, and I spent some time talking with him. And, and uh, Colton was so upset. It was early spring, and he told me, he looked at me in tears in his eyes. He said, Brother Guy, he said, I, I really pray that I get out here. He said, because I want to go to youth camp. I really want to go to youth camp. He got out, and lived with his aunt for a while and, and something got a hold of Colton you see his life was, was a wreck grandparents took him in and he brought them to church and God began to do a work in their life Colton I watched him go from this young man that was fearful and, and, and socially backwards and I watched him begin to blossom in a year and he'd come to the youth events and, and we'd pray with him, and, and I'd watch how he would grow spiritually to where Colton would minister to other young people. David, you know who I'm talking about. It was a couple years ago, last year, it was at camp and Colton was there. A whole year since he'd been in this place where he was confused and hurt. God had brought him so far. His guidance counselor was amazed. God was doing a work in Colton's life and, and preparing him for something. He didn't know what it was. I don't know what the end result's going to be. Youth camp goes by, and we saw some incredible things that year in youth camp. Family camp is connected with youth camp, and the third day we start family camp. And the first night of family camp, Wednesday night, we're having a service. AJ's there. He's from Wasilla. You know Sarah Palin? He doesn't know Sarah Palin. I don't know Sarah Palin. Just wanted to clear that up for you. He's from Wasilla, and uh, he's probably, he, now he's, he's blind. He, he didn't see Sarah Palin ever. Uh, AJ, let me tell you his story. He was um, a respiratory therapist in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, AJ got involved in drugs and went to purchase some drugs one night, and the drug deal went bad, and Someone pulled a gun and shot him in the head. Left him for dead out in the desert. They found him. He was alive, but he was blinded. That's been 16 years ago. Family camp's going on, and, and uh, AJ's there, and Chad Scott, his pastor's there, and, and all the young people just came off youth camp. Altar call's given, and AJ, he got the Holy Ghost a few years ago, but AJ's been going through some doubt and struggling with God's process and purpose in his life, and and so his pastor, Brother Scott, said, Hey, AJ, let's go up to the front. Let's just pray God refills you with the Holy Ghost. AJ goes up to the front, and he's lifting his hands, and he's praying. Something gets a hold of Colton. Colton runs over there, grabs Pastor Scott, and says, Hey, can we pray that 
God just heals AJ's eyes and opens them up. Chad told me, he said, I thought, sure, Colton, we, like we haven't been praying every service for the past six years that God would heal him, but whatever. Brother Scott told me, he said, I didn't have any faith at all. And Colton grabbed some of the other young people, and they began to lay hands on AJ and begin to pray. I was standing all the way across the altar on the other side of the sanctuary at camp. And all of a sudden I hear a scream, a shout, and just an explosion erupts. People are running, going crazy. I go running over there, booking over there, see what in the world's going on. I watch AJ grab those glasses off his face and just throws them. They fly across the under the pulpit, fall off the pulpit. He's screaming, I can see, I can see. I can see. God literally had reconnected some wires and pulled those blinders off of his eyes. For the first time in 16 years, he could see with clarity. I'm a skeptic at heart. I waited till things quieted down. Because I'd been in services before where people claimed something. I walked up and I said, AJ. He turned. And I just stuck my hand out. AJ walked right up to me and said, are you Brother Gallion? And grabs my hand. I don't know how God works. I'm not trying to say that. But let me tell you, I do know this. That if it wasn't for a 15-year-old young man that questioned the law of reality. I don't believe A.J. would have ever received a sight. When Hannah every year would come back to the temple, the Bible says, chapter 2 and verse 19, that his mother made for him a little coat brought it to him from year to year. Chapter 3 and 19, the Bible says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. He did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of God. I feel the Holy Ghost very strong in here tonight. I feel a heaviness, a weight, but I also feel an anticipation in God's Spirit. And this isn't the way I want to close this service, but I feel strongly that this is how we need to close it. Because I want to challenge someone's thinking right now. And I want to challenge you because you're wrestling with the process of reality in your life. And you have said, I can't accomplish, I can't do because of. And you've pointed to things in your past, and you've pointed to your insecurities, and you've pointed to your lack of abilities and talents. But I believe that tonight God is wanting to open your eyes, and He's wanting to remove your perception of reality. And He's wanting you to forget what's happened in the past and step into your future in the Holy Ghost. Because it takes one person. It doesn't matter how old. It doesn't matter how insecure. It doesn't matter what abilities you don't possess. It takes one person to say, can we? What if God could open the eyes of a blind man? Here's my challenge tonight as we're standing. This is not prophetic. It's just simply just simply a statement. The crowd that I'm speaking to, I can promise you that, that you're going through something. You wrestle with things of your past. You fight things every day you get up. 
You're inundated with the enemy trying to whisper in your ear, telling you you can't. It's impossible. Why even try? Pray. You've done that before. It's just a Wednesday night service. You come connect with people. That's why you're here. It's not to change your life, to revolutionize your walk. But what if? What if tonight God wanted to open up something and remove those blinded eyes and let you see spiritually what you can accomplish in the kingdom of God? I believe the Holy Ghost is wanting to confirm something to somebody. I'm asking us right now, can we just open our spirits up? Can you just say, Lord, I know my life isn't perfect. I know that. What bothers me is the fact that I don't know that I can come to you and you'll accept me and embrace me. God, what if tonight... If a 15-year-old kid from a messed up life can say, what if God could open his eyes? Let's pray and challenge the process of reality. God, what can I do for your kingdom? Oh, come on, somebody. God's wanting you to break through this veil called your reality. He's wanting you to step into a process and you to begin to grow year by year and week by week spiritually. Oh, I challenge somebody in the Holy Ghost, why don't you just step out and and make your way down to this altar and just fall on your knees and say, God, here I am. Wash over me. Prepare me to be used by you. Oh, come on. You remember those services that God began to speak to you and challenge you at youth camps and at, at singles retreat. Oh, it's not over. God's still reaching. God's still wanting you to do. Oh, somebody break through. Somebody push the enemy back saying, I'm not listening to your lies anymore. I'm not buying into it, but I'm breaking forth into my anointing. 